I do a lot of what I call non-sequitur humor, which means it's not necessarily going to make sense to you. I, I find it funny. Unfortunately, I'm enabled by some people. So as we're getting out of the car tonight, my wife says to me, and some of you will understand this. My wife says, turn off your phone. Yes, dear. You don't want people wondering where the TARDIS is landing. <laughs> that is my ringtone, and so some of you know that. Um, Miss Jo Beth has joined us in the nursing home ministry. So we have a little bit of the, the uh, royal family with us every now and again on Thursdays. Uh, she's the one leading the residents in singing songs they don't know. Uh, and she's heard me speak several times, and she did have a suggestion for me for tonight, but I'm going to talk anyway. Now, I would like you to turn to the book of Jude. We will in, be in Jude this evening. Jude is the fourth to last book of the Bible. What? Jude, Revelation, Concordance, and Maps. <laughs> so it's the... um, if you wonder sometimes during the course of my comments, I'll I'll clue you in. I will not joke about God. I will not joke about Jesus or the Holy Spirit. I will joke a little bit about the scriptures every now and again. And I, um, if you have trouble understanding a joke, if you think it's not a joke and you want to say, well, is that a joke, then look at the lady over there wearing the purple Easter bonnet. If she's going like this, it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> And if you see Brother Felton going like, he'll verify that it's a joke. So um, let's go ahead and get started with prayer. Father, bless us this evening. Help us to find truth in your word that you will help us to apply to our lives. Give us the grace to know the truth, to live the truth, to share the truth. Give us the grace to accept what you say, not what Wesley says, but what you say. And let us take it home with us this evening. Let us take it to our families, and let us take it day to day as you lead us. Bless the many requests that have been presented and shared this evening. We especially are mindful of the pastor and uh, Mrs. Uh, Hooker as they uh, are finishing up a trip to Africa, and certainly Brother Williams and others in that uh, um, passage. We just ask your grace on all of them as they return back home in the next week or so. And we ask, Lord, that you just uh, shine your light through each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Jude, verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ amen. and called. Now the writer of this epistle is self-identified as Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. He is actually the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He is actually half, he is actually full brother of James, the apostle. But
but he refers to himself as servant of Jesus Christ. This act of humility is an act of respect because he doesn't want you to know him. He wants you to know the master, Jesus Christ. John, in 1422, that's not a year, refers to him as Judas, not Iscariot. And you will find him listed as an apostle twice. Okay, three times if you know his pseudonyms. Now, he claims to be the servant of Jesus Christ. Paul does the same in the opening to his epistles. And so there must be something in there for us to learn. So go home tonight and learn it. (laughs) Now, Jude claims no special relationship to his brother because he is a sinner saved by grace. Just as his brother James is a sinner saved by grace. Just as you and I are sinners saved by grace. It is not false humility, it is respect. Not once in the Gospels do any of the apostles call Jesus, Jesus. Did you ever notice that? I read that one time. And so I was forced to sit down with a concordance and read every reference to Jesus in the Gospels. Not once did the apostles call him just Jesus. Those who did were usually demons or demon-possessed, or out of the inner circle. Now this raises the following questions. How familiar should you be with Jesus Christ if his disciples would not call him Jesus? How familiar should you be? How comfortable are you in the presence of God the creator. Could you, would you, walk up to Jesus Christ and smack him on the back? Would you walk up to him and fall to your knees? Would you hear the voice that says, draw not nigh hither? Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the ground where you stand is holy ground. Would you approach the throne and wait for the scepter to be extended? How familiar are you with Jesus Christ? A recent sermon in the Sword of the Lord takes exception to some contemporary pulpits and their familiarity with Jesus Christ as well as their familiarity with sin and sinful terms. The writer said that he could not use some of the language that contemporary pulpits use to reach sinners. Innately, we know there is a line. So when are we too close to the line? Take that home and think about it. This epistle is addressed to them that are sanctified by God the Father. Now, sanctified means to be made holy, but more specifically, it is to be purified or dedicated to divine purpose. 
it is more a dedicated, it is more sanctified to than sanctified from. This could be ceremonial. This could be actual. Virtual, is that the term they use today? We are declared holy by God the Father for his use. Now, Brother Harper mentioned Sunday that justified is to be declared holy. It is to be given credit for being holy, and that's the whole concept. It's actually a banking term. To be justified is to be given credit. Somebody's opened an account in your name and filled it with righteousness. You didn't put it in there, but God did. Well, sanctified is to go a step farther than this. This is to take justification a step toward the purpose of service. To be sanctified is to take advantage of justification. And neighbor, let me tell you this. You were not justified to make you look good. Now, I have trouble remembering the theological distinctions of some of the terms, either from the pulpit or even in my own daily Bible study. I try to keep things simple for me, and the older I get, the simpler they get. So if we're going to discuss sanctification, and we're going to discuss justification, then we have to discuss holiness. We say holiness is, we say God is holy. And as such, God is not touched by sin. Wrong. You see, he was touched by sin. He was the one who became sin when he bore all of our sins on the cross. God the Father turned his head from his dying son because he bore our sins. God the Father is well familiar with sin. He just doesn't practice it. I view God's holiness as separation from sinful practice. His command is to come out from among them, be ye separate. And that blends in beautifully with his command, be ye holy, for I am holy. I believe holiness is God's influence on us to do what is right. Psalm 97, 12. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. A remembrance is a recollection or a memorial. The remembrance of holiness should stir up your thoughts of God. In the Hebrew, the language for remembrance literally is sent, S-C-E-N-T. In this case, it is a sent that literally stirs up your memories. Now, some of you may smell the holiday cookies and pies and think back to your grandma's kitchen when you were a child. Frankly, if I smell pot pie, I think back to my mother's kitchen. Pretty much anything else would just make me think of my own kitchen, but... The word for remembrance and the word for scent is the same Hebrew word. We've got to draw that conclusion that they are the same if they are the same. You see, holiness, per this verse, makes us aware that we are in the presence of God. We are in his influence and holiness is that 
influence. Jude is addressing believers who are set aside by God the Father for his service. Yes, we are set aside by God, but the Greek word for by has another meaning. That other meaning is in. We are sanctified in God. John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. Amen. We are sanctified by God to be in God, totally in his influence of holiness. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This verse helps us to, to bolden up the concept that we are to be in Christ. Per the dictionary, the Greek word for, sin, for, for in is a primary preposition, denoting a fixed position in place, time, or state. And it implies instrumentality. That is, usefulness and purpose. Okay, let's try this in English. <laughs> Most of us know that a preposition is a word. And some of you know where this is going, don't you? Most of us know that a preposition is a word you're not supposed to end a sentence with. And I'm looking at all the educators because if they didn't get that joke, well... Break this down a little bit more. A preposition is a word showing the relationship between two words within a sentence. The desk was on the floor. The lamp was by the door. The lesson was over my head. And Christians should always be in Christ. If we are in Christ, we must have a relationship with him. We are in Christ, back to the Hebrew, we are in Christ in time, place, and state. The time is now. The place is his word. And the state is holiness. In Christ also shows our purpose. Letting our lights so shine. Fifteen times scriptures mention a fortress. Five times the psalmist says, God is my fortress. The writer knew that a fortress can protect us only if we are in it. In a moment you'll see one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is inspired. We are preserved in Jesus Christ. Preserved means kept and watched. This is a great picture of being kept by Jesus against that day. It portrays his protective hands over us. It means to be detained, retained, and maintained by Jesus Christ. But here comes the part that I love with all of this definition and definition and stuff like that. 
The Greek word for preserved is derived from the Greek word for custody. Custody implies a fortress. If you're not safe in Jesus Christ, I don't know where you can be safe. And then, of course, we are called. This seems almost an afterthought, but it is not. Its location here reemphasizes God's work in us and his purpose for us. It is the Greek word kletos, translated as called. It means chosen, appointed, selected, and it bears the idea of a vocation. Isn't that what we call our pastors for, a vocation? Isn't that what a lot of lay people consider themselves called to? A partial vocation? Not just a job, but a place where they have a significant investment. Part of our understanding of being called must come from John's reference to the Holy Spirit as the paracletus, that is the comforter. Literally, he is called alongside of us, paracletus, to minister to us. Similarly, Jesus is called our paracletus in John chapter 2, but the, but the English at this time does not call him the comforter. It calls him our advocate. Jude, verse 2, mercy unto you and peace and love. Be multiplied. Now verse 1 says a lot. We are sanctified, preserved, and called. It should be no surprise that we are blessed. And here are some of our blessings. Mercy. Now mercy is compassion. This means that God is not going to punish you for the sins that you have committed. He's not going to give you the punishment that you earned. For the wages of sin is death. But they are forgiven by a compassionate God. Compassion is our understanding of the pain and misfortune of other people. And it is the strong desire to alleviate that pain and misfortune. And Jesus put a lot of time and efforts into his disciples, his apostles, and say, you do this. You meet their needs. You go get the food. You, you, you. Seventy of you, go minister. Go do something for someone else. See, this is why we're told to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Peace. This is literally quietness and rest. And it's when you lie down to sleep and can actually sleep. You are alone with your thoughts, as frightening as that may be for some of you. You have hit the reset button, and life has no disturbances for you. Now, I don't want to split hairs tonight, anyway, by by bringing on more than I want to get into. The peace of God that passeth understanding would be an all-night study of its own but it is worth mentioning. Love. If you are familiar with the Greek words for love, then you know philios, love for friends, 
agape, benevolent love. And of course, the love mentioned by Jude is the benevolent love of God. It is the love of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. These blessings per this are multiplied while we are in Christ. They get deeper, they get stronger, they get more of us, and we get more of them as we remain in Jesus Christ. If we stray, these blessings diminish. These blessings may disappear. We will not lose our salvation, but we will lose the blessings of that salvation. When you see him, ask David about that. Jude verse 3. Beloved, when I, gave all when I gave all diligence to write to you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Jude said, I gave all diligence to write unto you. I like the word diligence. I've used it for years. I have it on my prayer lists. Not necessarily for me, but I pray for my son and my grandchildren to be diligent. See, diligent means this. It means to be constant and earnest in your, effort, in your efforts to do what you've started. To do what should be done. It is persistent exertion of body or mind. It means give it your all. It means stick with it. It means work hard. It means do all you have to do to get it done. It does not necessarily mean understand it. It does not mean doubt it. And it certainly doesn't mean argue with God about it. It means do it. See, for diligence is character. Diligence is godly character. Jude put all he had into writing this small book. In just 25 verses, Jude spoke of Israel's failings, of the church's failings, of false teachers, of apostasy, of the angels' failing, and of the hard road ahead for believers. This letter was a challenge for Jude to write. But he did it because he gave all diligence to get it done. I really, from reading this and studying this, I don't think he wanted to tell us some of the things he's about to tell us. Because we all want ice cream and puppies and all those good things. But that's not headed our way. And for Jude to have to tell us what is headed our way was a burden for him. He says, regarding our common salvation, that is the faith we share, the common salvation we simply, the common salvation we experience is the one that we have together. We share the grace of God. This community has no greater importance than it will be found in Hebrews 10. 22 to 25. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. See, the value of our common salvation is that we are part of each other's lives. Like it or not. And I know that when a lot of you look at me, it's not. But we are family. And I hate to say that because that envisions in my mind a song from the 70s and a certain Robert Hooker with Afro. <laughs> you know where we're going with this and the shame on you. But that just, it just makes me think that way. We are directed as a family to serve each other, to exhort each other, to support each other. And if nothing else, we are at least to assemble together. Jude's diligent to write was based on a need. It was needful for Jude to write to us under a need. This means he was under stress to write it. This means he was compelled to write it. This means he was constrained to write it. And being constrained means he couldn't do anything until he did what God wanted done. This epistle written. This epistle is about contending for the faith. The word contend means to fight Diligently. No, I'm not going to review that, but that's what the word contend means, to fight diligently. The Greek word for contend is so strong, it needs three English words to translate it. Should earnestly contend for the faith. Jude lived this type of contending when he wrote this. His diligence, his compulsion, his constraint matched the magnitude of his encouragement for us, his example to us to contend for the faith. In fact, the Greek word for contend is used in Luke twenty-two forty-four. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. You see, to contend is to be in agony. Hebrews 12, 4 says, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And the Greek word for resisted means prepared for battle. The Greek word for striving is not quite the same as contend, but it is from the same root word for contend. It means struggle. But the Hebrew word for struggle has a legal connotation to it to strive at law. Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 25, talk about striving with other people in lawsuits. Read any good headlines lately? Jude said he agonized over what he wrote, so we must agonize over what he told us. We are to contend for the faith 
given to us. I hate to say this myself, but it's ironic. The faith that cost us nothing to receive could cost us everything to keep. Mostly we see other Christians contend. Christians are martyred in many parts of the world. Governments close churches. Muslims kill believers. Even in our country, we are marginalized. We are insulted and we are discounted. Brother Harper, this past Sunday, told us his visa is not being renewed to return as a missionary to Canada. And I said, I'd worked with some Canadians years ago. At that steel mill I worked in, we had a piece of equipment to repair, which was built in Petersburg, Canada. And we had to get some of the men from that plant, the GE plant, to come down and help us repair this equipment. And we talked then, 20 years ago, about what was happening in the churches in Canada. How even then they were passing hate speech laws and a pastor in the pulpit could and would be arrested for teaching sins as enumerated in the Bible. He said that Brother Harper and I talked about this. He says, Brother, he says, frankly, I'm surprised they haven't kicked me out before. I can't let this pass. You know how they named Canada? All the early Canadians were sitting around a big fire, and they're saying, okay, what are we going to do? Pick a name. How are we going to choose a name? And one of them says, well, take the alphabet. Put it into a hat. And then they picked a child to come up. And the child was to draw out a couple letters. And the first letter he drew out, and the man in charge says, it's a C, eh? I'm sorry. Wipe that smile off your face. Two senators in our Congress just mocked the man for belonging to a church-sponsored organization. As he has been nominated for a position in the government, these two senators told him he should renounce his belief if he wanted to serve in our government. They said he should approve of their doctrines, not his church's doctrines. And whether you paid attention or not, we heard that during the last election cycle for president. As the candidates are saying, those Christians have to give up their beliefs. The church is not respected anymore in this land. Our society has rejected Christ and is now preparing to reject all followers. More than ever, we need each other. The faith which was once delivered unto the saints, well, there's good news about this faith. 
once delivered means once for all time. No weekly reenactments, no new prophets or prophecies. Sorry, Mr. Smith. Sorry, Mr. Russell. Sorry, Miss White. No new volumes of scripture. One time on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. Good news about this faith, once delivered also means once for all people. Black, white, male, female, warm, cold. No, wait a minute, already said that, male, female. (laughs) Educated, uneducated, rich or poor. The gospel is for everyone. It is for everyone. Now, as much as I have just told you, whether it'll be tomorrow at the nursing home or the following Thursday at the nursing home, I'm going to look at verse 4 because verse 4 is even more frightening than verse 3 because verse 4 takes us into the church where there will be false prophets. So if you want to f- finish this, you either wait until the pastor's in Africa again <laughs> or try me at the nursing home sometime in the next couple of weeks. Father, bless us. Thank you for the word. Thank you for, 